This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Mickey and Natica, An Adventure Across Time and Space. And the author is Jenna Lindsay, and Jenna joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Jenna. Hello, Steve. Great to have you with us. Uh, this is such a, a great sci-fi, uh, it's kind of a, I guess, uh, it's not so much a thriller, but there's quite a lot of emotion in it, right? Yes, yes. Yeah, so it's an emotional ride, and and before we find out more about you and why you did this, uh, let me read a few things you've written about your book. You say this. It's an action-packed science fiction adventure, entertaining and full of humor. It also received Editor's Choice with your publisher, so uh, congratulations. Thank you. That was great. And the two central characters are strong and work as a team instead of competing with each other. And what's really obviously, since it's sci-fi, the story takes place 300 years in the future, And, of course, the central characters travel through time and space, and they visit several other planets. So it has all the elements of a great sci-fi. So how did this all come about, Jenna? Tell us a little bit about your background and the uh, genesis of this great story. My background is more that I was one of those children that was told I had a vivid imagination. And... I would be frustrated with day-to-day life, and I would imagine what could happen and what I might like to happen when it didn't, in fact, occur. And so I was immediately drawn to fantasy. And when science fiction uh, was very popular, I won't say what decade, (laughs) on television, (laughs) I, I really was drawn to it as well. I... I liked that it had so many possibilities, as did fantasy. There was so much more than everyday life. I could, with the characters and actors, I could go anywhere and do and be anything. It was really freeing. I really enjoyed that. I, I still do. And, uh, but now when I'm frustrated with day-to-day life, I simply sit down and and write, <laughs> and I prefer the genres of science fiction and fantasy. They're, they're just more fun. Even when I'm dealing with uh, dark topics somewhere, I, I like to get a little bit of humor in there. Now, do you have a fav- favorite sci-fi author? I have, uh, I have, a fav- I have several, but um, one of my favorite authors uh, is William Goldman, and what I like about William Goldman is that he wrote Marathon Man and kept me up all night reading it. And he also wrote The Princess Bride. And I just love the 180 degrees turn that the same author was able to accomplish and keep me completely absorbed. And um, I suppose specifically for science fiction, uh, I really like Douglas Adams 
as so many people do. His Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, a trilogy in four parts, was brilliant. Jenna, tell us first of all about Mickey. Mickey comes from an obscenely wealthy family. He He's a bit of an embarrassment. He's a huge embarrassment to his family who are in the society papers because they're so wealthy and they go to all just the right parties and, and mingle with politicians and movie stars. And Mickey, because he, of his special ability, is an embarrassment to them. When Mickey's around, he's not necessarily not just going to say the correct thing, but um, glasses may break. General mayhem may occur unintentionally on Mickey's part. But they, what they do is they just give him a big allowance and kind of push him off to the side. And he ends up um, spending a great deal of his uh, childhood and as he gets older with a favorite uncle who um, is very carefree and uh, loves to gamble, and he likes the ladies. And this uncle, Uncle Farnsworth, has a big influence on Mickey. And when he passes, Mickey decides that he's going to uh, be like his uncle Farnsworth in that he's he's not going to worry so much about what his family thinks, and he's just going to go and um, step out of, of the circle of people that he's not comfortable with and be by himself and try to understand his special ability. And that's kind of where we meet up with him. He's driving the Jaguar that he inherited from his uncle, heading for his uncle's beach house, and determined that, oh, you know, he's, he's, going to, he's going to learn how to control his telekinesis. That's his special ability. And he's, he's going to be alone and give up on love. And, and this, this is what he, he has in his mind, but that's not what happens at all. Because he meets Natika. He meets Natika, yes. So, yes. And she has something else in mind entirely. She's on a special mission. <laughs> it's a bit of a shock to, to Mickey. But he's, he's surprisingly adaptable and up for it, which I really admire. So because of this kind of, is it kind of love at first sight? Absolutely. But it's, you, you like the sci-fi uh, treatment of that instead of, creating this into a, some kind of a fantasy. Yes, I, I, I didn't want to, I believe in love at first sight, and uh, I don't believe it's a fantasy. I believe it exists, and technology is still daunting and overwhelming to many of us. I have two computers, and I still get upset thinking, what button did I push? What key did I push? Oh my gosh. And I'm, I wanted to believe that love at first sight exists past, present, and future. And I wanted very much to make it fun. And I just felt that science fiction, which is a genre that I enjoy, was the best way to, to address this particular story as it developed. Big question in the book uh, is, is there life after death? <laughs> well, it's, um, it's a bit of a, a play on words. Mickey driving the Jaguar at excessive speeds on a rainy night on a dangerous highway. Um, 
he was in, supposed in Earth's history and Earth's timeline, he was supposed to have lost control of his car and uh, died, according to the newspapers. His body was never recovered. Therefore, is there life after death? Well, in Mickey's case, there definitely is, literally, because Natika, a special agent from the planet Kathia, comes 300 years back in time, and she doesn't prevent the car going over the cliff and exploding, uh, but she does uh, prevent Mickey from being in the car at that particular moment in time and takes him back with her 300 years uh, into the future. So you wanted Mickey and Natika to literally represent all the fun and love that's possible in a relationship, but you also wanted to experience the lighter side of science fiction. How did you pull that off? Well, sometimes when I have a, a conundrum and I'm frustrated and I think, oh, I, this this is depressing, there's nothing I can do about it. I, I hear myself and I think, that's right, it is depressing, it is frustrating, and there is nothing I can do about it, so why not just go with it and see what happens next? Um, I, I have a natural tendency toward pessimism, and I was bounced back and forth uh, between my pessimism and Mickey and Natika's more positive attitude, and when I finally just let myself be swooped up in their attitude, um, I, I had fun, and... Uh, I'd forgotten what it was like to have fun, and I just really enjoyed that and tried to focus on that, encourage the characters when they're in a tight spot, when they're being feeling or being threatened, to um, instead of uh, getting really tense and stressed by it, to make a joke. Uh, and they do. They have great... Uh, dialogue between the two of them, and I I liked that they would take a, a different point of view than I probably would have. Um, I found it um, really, uh, finally, I, uh, when I stopped arguing with them, I, I found that I really appreciated it. It was very relaxing at times. We'd be running away from some somebody who was chasing us, and, and I think, hey, this is actually fun. <laughs> <laughs> actually having a good time. Well, not only do they have a good time, but they're on a serious mission because Mickey's telekinesis is a matter, as you point out, of universal importance. Why? Yeah. Yes. And um, this is uh, something that Natika has been told by her bosses and she thinks she's just rescuing another space creature and and that's what she tells Mickey but she's been she's quoting her her boss Haddon when he tells her this is a matter of universal importance and you don't take your job seriously enough etc and um so she pushes that off onto Mickey but fortunately he has a good sense of humor and he's he tends to be the one who starts uh, an argument or well she starts an argument and Mickey follows it up by not taking it seriously and makes some funny remarks and she gets pulled into it pretty much the way I did that you know it's it's um, they, it turns out that the, what her assignment is to rescue Mickey so that he can help her 
rescue the Shartha, who at 300 years in the future is wandering around our universe and unintentionally being a little bit destructive. <laughs> um, it turns out that there's a lot more happening from that uh, focus than either of them realize. And it, it, it could go very terribly wrong. Um, and it's up to them, step by step, near disaster by near disaster, to prevent everything from going terribly wrong and to figure out what's happening around them to solve the mystery. To literally save the universe. Yes, they do. I mean, they yeah. don't have much of a mission. Extremely important, beyond comprehension, just to save the universe. Yes, yes, just to save the universe, no big deal, tra-la-la, and then go and have a, a cappuccino or a beer and, and, you know, put your feet back and put your feet up my back and relax. Uh, unfortunately, they, at, at, the, at the start of their adventure, they don't realize the, the implications of just rescuing this one lost space creature and how it's interrelated to and so many other uh, things that occur as they go along. And, that, and as it becomes more serious, I think they actually take it less seriously. <laughs> and along the way, they meet some interesting characters. Tell us just kind of uh, uh, some of them. Oh, I, I loved the supporting characters in this story. I, um, one of them's name is Kitzer, and he is a technology um, expert. He loves technology. He can't wait to get the latest thing. And he, he's very, he's not only really savvy, but he's very up for anything. And um, uh, another person that they meet, Tally, has been uh, many people have said to me, uh, that's my favorite character, and uh, he's, he's mine as well. He's just naturally laid back and funny, and he, uh, surprisingly to me, because I don't like to do too many notes, he ends up being very essential to the, the story, um, as, I, as does Kitzer, um, and... There's uh, another supporting character, Holstegar, and and in the end, it turns out that it's not just Mickey and Natika saving the universe, but it's all of them contributing to the solution and to the villain. We think, oh, we have two villains, really nasty villains, and one of them we get distracted by and we think, well, we solve, get rid of that villain, then we're all fine. And um, but oh, right, this other villain who keeps popping up in the most an, at the most annoying times in the most annoying ways, and we just can't ditch her. And, and so we have to remember, we being all the supporting characters and my central characters, well, what are we going to do about this one? And uh, I just let the characters take me with them, and I, I felt sometimes like I was just sitting in the back of the spaceship with a notepad and a pen saying, <laughs> okay, could you please? <laughs> oh, that's really good. I would never have thought of that. Okay. <laughs> yeah, they just started talking to you, didn't they? I just, they, I, when I get the, when I perceive the uh, concept, the idea, uh, I don't do outlines. I just start with the first line um, and the first scene as it takes place, as it gels in my mind, 
I write it and I get a feel for a little bit of what I want and a little bit of what could be. And then I just type, I just whip, whip into my study and say, oh, I'll just be a few minutes. And my husband knows, oh, a few minutes. Okay, I've got time to catch a movie. <laughs> <laughs> Well, along the way, Natika and Mickey, they encounter gamblers, slave traders, pesky aliens, zombies, a nefarious thief, a megalomaniac, and assorted bombs and bombshells. Yeah. Jenna, tell us how to get your book, Mickey and Natika, An Adventure Across Time and Space. Mickey and Natika are available through iUniverse online at... um, Barnes and Noble and um, Amazon.com and here in Canada.ca and Chapters Indigo. You can also go to um, my JennaLindsay.AuthorsExpress.com and that's my official blog site and it has links to these social media sites as well as my web page and it can uh, and my Amazon page. And uh, I was very uncomfortable with that at first, but it's once I I got past that, I pushed, gave myself a little push, and said, "Hey, you're writing about technology, so come on, let's get into the social media." And it's it's quite fun, and it's very handy. Just go to that one site, and it has links to all these other places where you can order my books online. Well, thank you, Jenna Lindsay, for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Thank you, Steve. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi, everybody. This is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear these latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Evermore, people have the means to live, but no meaning to live for. These are the words of Dr. Victor Frankel, the inspiration for the movie Victor and I. That's V-I-K-T-O-R and I, movie.com. And TalkSense Radio, The Meaning Connection, with host Mary Similuka and frequent contributor Alexander Vesley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 central on toginet.com. More and more people today are discarding their quest for money, possessions, and things, and are instead beginning a serious quest to find meaning in life. Until now, these discussions were historically in the hands of priests, ministers, and scribes, then to philosophers, psychiatrists, and psychologists. Now, these deep discussions are where they should be, in the hands of individuals, on the air, with you. Talk Sense Radio, The Meaning Connection, with your host, Mary Similuka, and frequent contributor, Alexander Vesley. 
Friday afternoons at 3, 2 Central on Toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, American Spirit, a story in American individualism. And the author is Roger Smith. And Roger joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Roger. Hello, Steve. Great to have you. Well, great to have you with us. Uh, You're going to take us on quite a historical fiction journey. Uh, Your family's involved in this story. Let me read in general what your book is about. You say, I follow four generations of immigrant families who come to the New World in the mid-1700s from Scotland, Ireland, and Germany to seek new opportunities They scratch a civilization from a wilderness, fight for their liberty against Britain, the most powerful army on earth, raise their families, and then fight against what they perceive as tyranny when the Lincoln Unionists tried to deny the freedom they thought was guaranteed by the U.S. Constitution. So quite a span here of uh, generations, as you say, we're following four generations and your great-great-grandfather, Hiram Smith, is a very important part of this. Well, tell us about yourself, first of all, Roger, a little bit about your background and why you decided to write this book. Well, I was uh, was born in North Carolina. That's where uh, my great-great-grandfather lived, uh, uh, in the foothills of the Smoky Mountains. When I was in first grade, our family moved to Lynchburg, Virginia, near Appomattox, and I was almost immediately immersed in Virginia history and became uh, enamored uh, with the study of history early on. And uh, and as I asked questions about my grandfather's uh, back in North Carolina about the Civil War, they seemed to have very little interest in it. And it shocked me uh, because I knew North Carolina was a Confederate state as well, and it, as I delved deeper into it, I realized that uh, my great-great-grandfather, Hiram Smith, uh, had actually refused to fight for the Confederacy. And later in the war, when the Confederates became desperate for troops, uh, during one of their forays into western North Carolina to round up some of these deserters and draft dodgers, uh, they found him, he tried to run away, and they, they shot and killed him. And... Uh, I was disappointed as a child. I thought, uh, why couldn't I have some uh, flashy uh, hero in my family like these other uh, kids did? But uh, as I grew and studied the war more, I discovered that uh, Hiram's uh, adherence to his principles uh, cost him his life. And uh, uh, as a student at the Air Force Academy, I majored in history uh, with a special emphasis on the Civil War, and I found discovered more and more about its causes and what the war was really about. And uh, over the years, as an Air Force officer, uh, I had an opportunity to write a book uh, while I was at the Air Command and Staff College at Maxwell Air Force Base in Alabama uh, and learned a lot about how to write. I was assigned some great editors, and uh, the idea of this, uh, my great-grandfather continued to uh, to be with me, and I kind of combined my ability to write uh, and the research I'd done uh, at last into American spirit. And that's kind of in a nutshell, I guess, how it all came about. 
What would you say, Roger, what, would, what drove most European immigrants to America during the colonial era? What would you, how would you uh, summarize that? Well, that's a good question. Uh, uh, there were a number of reasons. Economic opportunity, certainly. Uh, uh, things were so bad in uh, Ireland and England and Scotland and Germany and throughout uh, uh, Europe in the in the 1600s that many of them came seeking opportunity. Probably just as important uh, was freedom to them. But they had been denied freedom on so many levels, and my book goes into this uh, in Scotland in the 1600s, and then uh, many Scottish uh, border folks under King James. Uh, the sixth of Scotland, King James the first of England, the same same man, uh, were moved into Northern Ireland, which is uh, how we ended up with Protestants in in Ireland. That remains an issue today. And then those people uh, still couldn't find the freedom that they desired. And and uh, at the same time, the New World was opening, so they came to America. Uh, so freedom of uh, of opportunity economic opportunity and freedom to express their faith the way they wanted uh, were all important reasons that those people risked life and limb to come to this country. And we've lost sight of those things a lot. And uh, it, it was a, they were good people. They had noble virtues and, uh, and they wanted a place that they could raise their children in an environment to pass those uh, characteristics along to them. One of the unique aspects of this historical fiction is that it isn't necessarily focused on the famous, the political, the military that we often hear so much about. You're doing this from a common man's perspective. Yes, I, I do try to do it uh, from that perspective, partially because that's where my family were, the group my family was in, but also because... Most Americans, early Americans who came to this country, were not the movers and shakers of their society. They were the craftsmen, the laborers, uh, uh, the people who were downtrodden for the most part. Uh, came as uh, many thousands of them came as indentured servants. Basically, they sold themselves into slavery for seven years so someone would pay their passage to the New World. Uh, Steve, there's two quotes that I that I. Uh, think of constantly. One is by Marcus uh, Cicero, who was a Roman teacher and philosopher in the first century before Christ, and he said, to be ignorant of what occurred before you were born is to remain always a child. And a second one by George Santayana, a Spanish philosopher in the first half of the 20th century, is very similar. He said, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. And I think those are very significant in, in my philosophy on life. I think history, uh, just like uh, science and mathematics, agriculture, any other academic endeavor, uh, is instrumental for us to, to build on the body of knowledge to make our society better. And, uh, and I think if we lose sight of those things, then, uh, then we're in trouble. And, and we, we lose that moral compass that, that keeps us headed in the right direction. And I think we're at that point in America. What were the common people thinking? What was their opinion uh, about the issues of the day? And uh, if we can look at that and discover those things, 
rather than looking at them through the prism of political correctness. I think we uh, we can make our society better and better understand where we came from so we can understand where we're going. Most of us, when we hear the, the word civil war, we always think about the fight against slavery, the war between the North and South over slavery, uh, obviously a very important and critical issue and a divisive issue, but at the same time, you take a little bit more of a, a little different slant on it, a little, a little different perspective. Explain that. Well, the uh, United States Constitution, the first 20 years, that uh, slavery was such a divisive issue that the Founding Fathers agreed that, okay, we will not discuss slavery at all, from 1788 until 1808, slavery, discussions of slavery and slavery-related issues were forbidden. In 1808, the floor was open again in, in Congress. And uh, to read about the discussions that happened, the fist fights, uh, the name-calling, uh, the tinderbox that just grew and grew and grew is, is a fascinating study. Uh, from 1808 until the Civil War erupted in 1861. And I went back and, and researched a lot of those issues and what were people concerned about. The, uh, of course, the, the economic interests of the northern uh, merchants and the southern agriculturalists uh, cannot deny it. Uh, but our vision of the South in the pre-Civil War days has been tainted from reality by a lot of Things like the movie Gone with the Wind, for instance. Uh, very, very few Southerners enjoyed the opulence of a plantation like Terra. In fact, less than 10% of Southern families owned any slaves at all. And if you think about that, why would people fight to, to uh, maintain an institution that was not really benefiting them? And it really uh, comes down to their perception of... of uh, what the Constitution guaranteed them and states' rights. Uh, not so much whether slavery was right or wrong. Of course, many people in the South argued that issue. And the, uh, many, many people were starting to understand as there was a rising middle class in the South of craftsmen uh, that uh, slavery was an impediment to their own progress. So how do you compete with slave labor, uh, for instance? But, but, uh, those people worried more than about slavery were concerned with a federal government that was overly powerful that could usurp the rights that states held for themselves. And that was very important. Robert E. Lee, for instance, if you read uh, a lot of his letters and his works, the works about Robert E. Lee, he struggled with the issue of slavery and, in fact, freed many of his, his own slaves. And when he referred to Virginia, his native state, he referred to it not as his state, but his country. And that was very important uh, uh, mindset for those people that we overlook today. We tend to label all white Southerners as, as wanting to keep uh, black uh, persons in bondage. And, and that simply was not the case uh, for the most part. So there was much, much more going on uh, uh, than just the slavery issue. Of course, that is the issue that... Uh, that uh, touched off the firestorm, I suppose. Now, another theme in your book is the separation of church and state in American society. Uh, give us a, a glimpse of that. Well, there, 
That is very important. When the when the, our ancestors came to this country, they came with their own faiths. There were Jews, there were French, Scots, Baptist, Anabaptist, uh, Scottish Presbyterians. You name it. Everybody had their own faith, and the, and many of the colonies had imposed a tithing a tithing tax to support the Church of England, which was the of course the official church of our mother country, England, and they greatly resented that. Uh, by the same token, uh, most people were Christian, and I think we cannot deny the, uh, the impact of the Christian faith on the, uh, the way our founding fathers set up our country and uh, established our culture and our government, uh, but... When they did establish that government, they had uh, did not forget how much they resented the Church of England dictating so many policies to them, and they made sure that they set up a government that separated church and state and and ensured freedom uh, to all peoples, regardless of their faith. We've taken that to the far limit, in my opinion, and uh, have become a culture that is not so much a society that is freedom of religion as freedom from religion, uh, to the point that we exclude the uh, prayer in school, for example, at many at sporting events and go on, and I won't get into that debate, but it's just an example of how far it's coming. I think our founding fathers would, uh, would uh, roll in their graves if they knew how much we were excluding God, and I think to the detriment of our country, uh, that that faith that they came to this country with gave them, as I've referred to before, a moral compass that we seem to have lost. And our moral compass swings wildly, depending on the, uh, which group of people uh, have a voice at the time uh, to determine what's right and what's wrong, instead of looking to a supreme source, as our forefathers did, for guidance. And uh, that's that's very important for us to understand that they did come to this country with a very strong faith, and it was important in the founding of this country. In just a little bit of time that we have left, is the dream that our ancestors carried with them across the ocean to America, is that dream still alive for our children? You know, that's the $64,000 question, Steve, and, and uh, that, uh, that uh, it's the underlying question that goes throughout the book uh, that uh, I try to get readers to wrestle with. Do we still have that that desire to create a, a country where people can be free and, and raise their children uh, and pass on the cultural traditions that, uh, that they think are important? I think we do. I think we're losing sight of it. But if we can reconnect with our past uh, through books like American Spirit, maybe it'll prompt people to study and and uh, and uh, go back and, and look at other resources and study where we came from, then I think we can reconnect. But I think we're we're skating on pretty thin ice right now, and and uh, and I, I pray that uh, that our future uh, will be secure if if we can regain an understanding of where we came from. Certainly, there's a lot of positive aspects of of repeating history, and there's also a lot of destructive, negative aspects of repeating history. So, there's a, there's a lot of good stories too. Uh, I'm a pilot 
for Southwest Airlines and my co-pilot last week, Fantastic, told me a story about his son-in-law, Chase Presnicki, and I would encourage you, uh, if you get a chance to to Google this young man, West Point graduate, quarterback of his high school football team, incredibly smart guy, but uh, Chase was married to Nick's daughter, and last June he was killed in a roadside uh, bomb in, uh, in, in Afghanistan, and uh, just such a dreadful thing, but he had so much faith in his country and believed so strongly. And I think when we're still producing young men and women like that, there is hope for America. And I think that American spirit is still alive, and and that gives me hope. We've been listening to author Roger Smith, his book titled American Spirit, a story in American individualism. Roger, tell us how to get your book. Well, it's published by iUniverse, but it's also available on Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, all your uh, favorite retailers. And uh, I would encourage you to buy it. It's a great read. It's funny. It's sad. It's moving. It will make you proud to be an American. And uh, I think it's a good read. Thank you, Roger, for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Thank you. It's been great. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Show me the money! Okay, we will. We're going to teach you how to tell your money where to go. It's Intelligent Investing with Pam Otten on Toginet. Learn how to be a savvy investor from someone who has your best interest at heart. Pam Otten is a financial advisor who loves to help successful business owners and entrepreneurs understand the mysteries of the investment world. And she's not afraid to share that knowledge. Pam is an unashamed Christian and qualified kingdom advisor, which means she's trained and committed to integrating biblical principles into her financial advice. Pam believes investing isn't rocket science. This is the financial advisor who's in your corner and truly understands and cares about you and helping you achieve your goals. Securities and advisory services are offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA, SIPC. It's Intelligent Investing with Pam Otten on Toginet. Connect with Juliana and connect with what lies beneath. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on toginet.com. Juliana is a marriage, family, and child therapist who wants people to connect. Connect with what lies beneath, those truths and answers. And through her counseling practice, she has helped others find their personal power and fulfill their dreams. And she wants to do the same for you, here on Connect with Juliana. Through intimate discussions, intriguing subject matters, and the expertise of her guests. For more on the show and Juliana, check out her webpage, connectwithjulianainmedia.com. Juliana will cover it all. Nothing is off limits. She wants to know what matters to you. Make the connection. Tune in to Toginet to connect with Juliana to find out the facts that could be hidden beneath the surface. Connect with Juliana on Toginet to make a quality connection in your life. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, At the Precipice, My Three-Year Journey from Stroke to Good Health with Type 2 Diabetes. And the author is Jim Schnell, and Jim joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Jim. 
Hi there. How are you doing? Thank you very much for having me. I'm delighted I could join you folks today. Well, well great to have you with us. Uh, as you say, this is a short, very readable book, devoid of deep technical terms and complex explanations as to get one up to speed on most aspects of type 2 diabetes, its impact, and how to manage it. And, and you do this, of course, from your direct experiences with it. Uh, you uh, have been struggling for some 26 years, but the last four years, it's been a whole different journey, hasn't it? Yes, it has. Well, when I had the stroke, things really got bad, and we, I had to get serious about it. I mean, it's like, holy holy devil, look at this. This is yeah. out of control. Numbers wouldn't come down, and we were really in, I was really in a hot spot. So, yes. Well, first of all, congratulations, because you're a perfect example of taking control and not just being some victim that there's nothing I can do, but, of course, you also have learned that you got to put together a, a really good medical team to help you, but you've got to take control yourself. Absolutely, you do. I mean, I was sitting there one day and said, hey, wait a minute, numbers are getting worse. What can I do? And things were just going haywire. And I said, you know what? I'm an engineer. I used to use test equipment. Wait a minute. I had this this blood glucose meter, the caveman, they call it, the caveman fingerprint machine. What can I do? (laughs) Well, I can get off my stuff and I can remember exercise knocking my numbers back. So I said, okay, we're going to go start walking. Start, Start that from that end of it with the glucose meter every hour taking readings, horrible number of readings, I might add. But in the end, we ended up uh, proving what we needed to prove and at the same time getting those numbers back down to where they needed to go. So exercise and eating right and then working with your diabetic team. Absolutely correct. You really need your doctor. I mean, I'll be honest, my doctor and my team, and I consider my team to include things like web pages and web blogs and people who deal with diabetes day in and day out, like TU Diabetes, self Diabetes Self Management. There are a number of blogs, excellent blogs. ADA have blogs. All of them do that are really give you a lot of data. You can hear about other people who've been suffering and struggling, and it helps you put together a picture. But the certified diabetes educators and dietitians all can be exceedingly helpful and get you guided on the right path. So problems with your liver, problems with your pancreas uh, didn't look good. No, it certainly didn't look good, and uh, it was just getting worse. And so, like I said, we started getting going out marching around. In fact, because of the stroke, I was running around with a walker at one stage and finally got the point as we kept walking and marching, we finally started to get the thing much better under control with the help of my doctor who understood certain aspects and identified things we could do along with uh, kidney doctors and others. And we finally, uh, after two years, finally wrenched that thing Back in four years, finally, we had it under a sense of having the meds and a whole a whole package of things we did that really just cleaned it up and uh, stopped the mess. I never used the word cure, and I want to advise anybody that I really don't think you cure this mess. You might operate the body in a, in a more pro, in a more appropriate operating zone of where things operate, such that you're healthy. But I don't think you ever really cure this thing. I think this is something that just goes on. But as long as you Follow your routines and diet and exercise and the pills and follow them carefully and your 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 team. You should be able to keep this um, keep this mess under control and have valuable years ahead of you. Very important to collect the data, though. You got to collect that data to give the team uh, understanding of uh, either maybe a change has to be made or you're going in the right direction. That is correct. And as a matter of fact, we use the metering today to sit here and watch what we're eating every time. 
two hours after every meal, we sit there and take a reading and say, well, what do the numbers look like? Did we did we hammer the body or did we uh, eat properly and didn't over didn't overfill the plate or did we pick the wrong items? Yeah, every we're doing that all the time, keeping an eye on it and first thing in the morning and just keeping an eye on it. And you just you just have to do that. Just why as you do, I know that's a problem. Scripts are expensive and that's an issue for people. And I wouldn't wanna wouldn't wanna, you know, say that's not the case. It is. Well, Jim, I think everyone can understand already that this isn't theory. This is coming from someone who's literally could be seen as an expert. You understand what needs to be done. I'm sure that you're a unique situation. Everybody's unique. But in general, uh, your book kind of lays out a, a plan. Well, we try to. And we tried to set up a book that was short and sweet, and you could throw out what you didn't want it, what you think didn't apply to you. Or you could listen to the pieces that I'd run into and how difficult we had it, and you can decide in your own mind what was helpful to you, what wasn't. And so we kept the book short, and it was more from the point of view of an engineer who does things, and, and it didn't read like a storybook. It read like a book that this is what we did scientifically. <laughs> As an engineer, here's what we were tinkering <laughs> and playing with. Well, and, and, and that's what I think makes it so effective, because you're a detailed-oriented kind of guy. Oh, absolutely. Um, to be truthful with you, I work on very complex electronics, and we used to have tons of meters and gauges. And I'll tell you honestly, the things we had to look at, you know, microprocessor electronics, massive logic analyzers, tons of data. And here you stand in the diabetes land, and here you've got a blood glucose meter, one, one, one item. And the rest of the tests, I'm not sure how well they all do, these one-shot tests and things. But my sense is we could do better in the metering side, but that's a, that's a long story. I don't want to in, in anger anybody, but I honestly think we could do a little bit better there, such that we could help people quickly and more, you know more frequently. The current system is based on it's just the pancreas is wrong. You know, it's sort of a tiny little system. Well, it's not. It's five organs, bunch of hormones. Here you've got a chemical plant running loose, and the doctor's got to figure out some way how to tune that back down to where you're operating properly. And that is non-trivial. It really is non-trivial. So that's what I would offer. When you first started making your behavior changes, your uh, getting off the couch, so to speak, and and changing your eating, uh, that was a process. And it, I mean, was it hard at first? Oh yes, and I'll tell you honestly, one of the things that we didn't realize we were we were we started we realized quite I was gaining weight like mad. I went from around two fifty up to three hundred thirty pounds, and we're going, holy mackerel, what's causing that? I'm not eating wrong, but I didn't have the right diet, so we said, oh, okay, we'll immediately institute a proper diet. Well, that's an interesting story. The diet, for some reason, was 1,200 calories, and we still use the same diet and the same foods, but back then, two, two, two years ago, until we figured out how to get the liver shut down, the darn liver was pumping in so much extra glucose, it's like, hey, wait a minute here, doesn't matter what I do, I'm still gaining weight, and it was, it was very frustrating, and once, once we clicked on to who was messing the picnic up and got him out of the room, then the diet and exercise, they work like a dream. They really do. But if you've got medical problems, you may find you go to these diets and say, these aren't helping me. They aren't doing the right thing. Well, sometimes somebody else is at the picnic throwing in glucose who shouldn't be really doing that at the wrong times. So you got to figure out what are the good carbs. That too, yes. you want to. From this man's perspective, the, the key word would be 
for some it's the old Neanderthal diet, but it really is the more more uh, appropriate name and positive name in the world today is the Mediterranean diet and the low carb diet are the more popular names today. But the old the old names and old attitudes would be you need to be back on the diet the darn body was optimized for a couple million years ago to digest, eat, and not flood the body with too much energy. And hearty exercise, as you call it, was that hard to get into the routine? Not as bad as one would think. And I know my doctor said, you know, if that drives them nuts. He says, I can't tell people to go exercise hard. But I told him, I said, you know what, if you don't, if you just walk to the fire hydrant and back, forget it. That's not doing anything. You virtually need to walk. Like in my case, we actually were walking quarter-mile stints around my condo park and discovered that as long as I walked two miles, I could routinely see the, the glucose burned off and kicked out of the body from the liver in the morning. As long as I got those two miles in, I could bang it back down and get it out of That's how long it took to walk it off. Well, later we learned on how to control the liver. But at that point, we were doing that every day, walking two miles first thing in the morning, cutting every excess carb in the morning, slicing the diet down to a bit of proteins, nuts, and a few things. First thing in the morning, not to hammer the body, because when you wake up, the darn liver's been hammering the body, so you wake up totally saturated, and it's like, oh, no. And uh, so that's where we were at and what we were doing. And you, you learn these things, and um, but the two miles, my read is you've got to walk, get enough exercise, either weightlifting, whatever you can do. I realize not everybody can walk, but you've got to get enough exercise that helps burn down some of the glucose that's been stuffed in your body by either the liver or the diet you eat or whatever. It's really crucial. Like I said, to me, it was two miles. Other people walk further and longer, but for me, the minimum was two miles. Don't walk two miles, the numbers sat up in the, from the skylight. Walk two miles, numbers would crawl right back down to 100 or 110, and from there, the body would run reasonably good all day long. And that's what we watched every day for about two years. It was really a riot. Well, when you think of diabetes, you think of the finger prick. Now, how do you deal with all those? Well, I don't know what you mean, deal. Um, we suffered. Um, we simply, you know, the, the, the real tragedy here is you need to find out which fingers of your body work the best and give you the best repeatable numbers because they don't all work the same. I'm old. I'm an old, I call an old goat or an old something. Um, <laughs> the answer is you have to find fingers that work good. I don't like testing on the arm. I, I, there's some people are very successful with that. I still use my finger. I find my fingertips are the most accurate and the fastest. And the most reliable for some reason they have a, they have a window on the uh, best blood in the body coming right off the heart out through the arms so that's why and we got used to it. first we started you know we started with a few fingerprints then we got up to 30 then we went on to a CGMS you know continuous glucose monitoring system which those are very intriguing very expensive but if you really need to get a hook on what the devil that body's doing 24/7 the CGMS is certainly the right tool for that not everybody needs one I say so in my book, if you don't need it and your blood sugars are moving slowly and your liver's not deciding to throw out the whole pail of glucose at your body periodically and you need to catch that, yeah, you need a CGMS. But beyond that, you should be, if your body is running normally for most people, usually the sugars are moving slowly enough that a few fingerprints throughout the day, typically a minimum of four to six would probably be more than adequate. Uh, more than that is getting for diagnostic reasons. And I, I really... I don't want to tell everybody you need to go out and re do it all the time. I would leave that to your doctor to decide how many times you need to do it. There's a lot of conflicting information out there. Uh, you even call it vague advice. There's a lot of advertisements for mir uh, mir 
miracle cures, and of course, the promise of impossible advances in non-medical supplements. You've just kind of, kind of, I guess, waded through all that and got to a point where here we are, and you've got the proof. I mean, your book is the proof. Yeah, well, thank you. Well, what I'd like to offer is that the problem we have with all of this is that, yes, for some people's diabetes may not be that bad. Maybe all they need is a little bit of exercise, a little bit of diet, and yes, maybe some supplements. They do help. I mean, let's not kid ourselves. That, you know, nobody can quantify what those supplements are doing, but I take a bunch too as a safe bet. But the answer is, for some people, those things do work miracles. Some say it's vinegar. Some say it's cinnamon. Well, I'm an engineer on a complex system and said, well, that's all very nice, but what does that prove? You know, will that cure my diabetes? And I had to say, Pro- probably not. And uh, But you might be lucky. I cannot... I cannot stand here and say, no, I won't do anything. That's not true either. But, you know, for some folks, they may that may be all they need. Maybe all they need is a little fix. But for a lot of us who get more serious and been longer at it, the answer is you just got to get serious and get on it and get your medical help, get your, you know, diabetes educator on the job, get your website, learn everything you can and go out there and drive it hard and learn about diets, what are the best diets, and drive it hard. You've already said that you probably wouldn't call yourself cured, but life is not only a whole lot better, is it closer to normal than ever? Yes, and the funny joke is, and I don't like to go on about this because people think I'm peddling a cure, but I'll tell you honestly, we actually ended up in a zone as we were, as we finally got the liver control back down, stayed tough on our diet and exercise. Suddenly one day, I found my, I was getting lows on my continuous glucose monitor. I'm thinking, what the devil's that? We're getting these lows all of a sudden, and I had to call my doctor. I said, hey, wait a minute here. What's wrong with this insulin I've been taking as well? So we suddenly found ourselves cutting back on the insulin, cutting out the starlet, cutting out a bunch of pills. For some reason, my bloody uh, pancreas, pardon my language, but my, my pancreas suddenly decides to come out of a Rip Van Winkle sleep and start throwing insulin at the problem. And I could actually see it, see the boluses coming off, which I hadn't seen before, and I'm thinking, that's bizarre. What the devil is that all about? Well, lo and behold, here we were, going off 75, 25, 26 units of insulin, throwing that out, taking Starlix pills, cutting them in half, and that was still too much, threw them out. And finally, up the situation now, we're at, where basically the metformin is doing the, doing the yeoman's work of keeping the liver cranked down, and along with the diet, and a little bit of insulin here and there. If I overeat or the numbers get a little too high or the, or the liver or the pancreas sputtered a little bit, but... All of that led to looking into work that had been done by people on starvation diets, RU X or RU Y, uh, you know, the bariatric bypass surgery, uh, intestine liners. There is a credible load of work out there where there is scientific data coming back and people are using things like 23rd century tools, MRI spectrography, where they use the MRI machine to go look at an organ and they can literally tell from that they can take spectrography readings of glucose, you know, the, the insulin, everything going on in a body with MRI, and it's unbelievable. And you go, wait a minute. And they, they, they are starting to see data that just doesn't make sense with the conventional thinking about diabetes, about it's not curable, and all the rest of it. I said, I don't think it's curable, but I think you can really do a lot to put a stop to it and save your health and your eyes and your body. Well, Jim, you're remarkable. We just want to uh, applaud of your great uh Great changes in your life. Uh, life is back to uh, almost normal. I mean, you can do so much better than you've ever done before, and I can't imagine not yeah, wanting I'm to. I'm deeply thankful for the help of my doctor and my, 
you know, my 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 kidney doctor and all the people, the websites and all those who've helped me. It's all it's all a helpful puzzle. It can be frustrating, like you said. There's a lot of junk out there on the web, and yet at the same time, there are diamonds hidden amongst all the junk. And right. The key as an individual is to wade through it all and make up your mind. What do you think applies to you, and what makes sense? But watch out for. You know, death by statistics, I call it. There's all kinds of reports out there about this doesn't work, this causes diabetes, and all of it is statistical analysis, which frankly is look. Frankly, all that provides you is flags where to go research. It is not the research that is causative that says yes, this is this is what's causing that. You know, it's sort of very interesting, and you want to look at it and study it. But I wouldn't wouldn't hold your hat to it right now. We've been listening to Jim Snell. He is the author of his book At the Precipice. My three-year journey from stroke to good health with type 2 diabetes. Jim, tell us how to get your book. Uh, you can get it from iUniverse. You can get it from Barnes & Noble. I believe Graham uh, Ingram Books also carries it. it. It is out there on the web. You can go look my book title up on the web, and you will see a number of vendors all have it at different prices and rates and whatever discounts they're offering. That way you can get it real quick. And if in the bottom line you can't find it, give, send me an email at jwsnell4 at earthlink.net, and I'll see what I can do to get your book if you can't get a book. So I'm not offering free books, but all I'm offering is if you're having trouble, I'll try and put you on either to a vendor, and if I'm failing that, we'd still like you to have the book. So let me know. Jim, thanks so much for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Thank you, sir. I really appreciate it. Thanks to all your audience listening to me today, giving this opportunity to chat about what we've done on type 2 diabetes and why it's really important for you to look after your health iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.